You're listening to The Rights Pod, a podcast by the Center for Human Rights and International Justice at Stanford University. If you're interested in human rights, then you're listening to The Rights Pod. I'm Alina Utrada, and this is The Rights Pod. For today's episode, I sat down with one of our current human rights students, Shika Srinivas, to discuss Harry Potter and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. A disclaimer that there will be spoilers about the series in our conversation, and we won't be providing oblivion charms for those of you who want to have your memory wiped after listening. But in this episode, we'll be diving into the wizarding world and asking some of the tough questions. Like, does the prison of Azkaban meet human rights standards? Are the Ministry of Magic and the Daily Prophet really committed to free speech? And in light of J.K. Rowling's anti-trans activism, can we really separate art from the artist? Can we continue to love the Harry Potter books as adults? For answers to these magical questions, you're listening to The Rights Pod. So hi everyone, I'm Alina Utrada. And I'm Shika Srinivas. And today we're talking about one of my favorite topics of all time, Harry Potter and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So Shika, why is it important to read Harry Potter in the context of the UDHR and of human rights? So as a kid, there's so many little details that you miss and, you know, your mind is not yet as open to a lot of the discrimination and politicization of different topics. And so going back through and understanding that, you know, the biases of the author, the time period can really affect the portrayal of different people, different creatures, uh, is really, really relevant to also being able to apply that knowledge and understanding and empathy into the world in order to, you know, pursue a more anti-racist one. And so rereading the books with this context is extremely critical to understanding how these children's books can be mirrors of our own lives. And while it is really, really enjoyable to enjoy them in their own right and in their own context, there are times when there are grave reminders and grave issues that need to be discussed. Yeah, and this discussion is taking place in a context I want to address, which is that a few weeks ago, J.K. Rowling publicly tweeted um, anti-trans statements. And these statements were really hurtful for a number of reasons. Um, One is that they came in the middle of the Black Lives Matter protests and in the middle of Pride. Um, And Pride and the LGBT movement in the United States began because two black and brown trans women, Marcia Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, were rioting against police brutality um, at Stonewall. Um, And the other reason that they were just so incredibly hurtful is that J.K. Rowling is a children's author, and that means that she has an outsized influence in her ability to affect children. And, you know, even the child within us all, so it's just really heartbreaking to read the statements by trans folks about how meaningful Hogwarts was to them as kids and how 
you know, they imagined the wizarding world as a place where they would be safe and, uh, you know, respected and accepted. And to find out that the creator of that world didn't agree must have just been just devastating. It's just devastating and a constant reminder that it is very difficult to separate the art from the artist in a way. And in this case, the, the books and their output from the author. Um, in times like this, I'm reflecting on what Daniel Radcliffe mentioned in his letter from the Trevor Project and in how, you know, we can have a sacred relationship with the book and we can take away what we need to from the books. And kind of the beauty of reading is in drawing your own meanings. Um, that's not to discount the way she actively influences her characters and her storyline with the removal or the discrimination against other characters. But there, there are a lot of beautiful messages that even she can't take. So I think that's the context in which we are having this discussion about the wizarding world and human rights. Was just to say that, you know, we did find something really valuable and wonderful about Harry Potter and the wizarding world when we were children. And in many ways that, that world and those characters are very dear to us and were very important to us. But much like growing up in the real world, you find that there are a lot of things that you don't support or people whose values you find abhorrent or structural injustice that you need to challenge um, and you need to fight against. And so um, that's sort of what we're going to try to do today when we talk about Harry Potter and the UDHR. So the format of the podcast is going to be the following. Sheik and I have picked out about five articles from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and we're going to have five minutes to discuss how each of these rights is or is not reflected in the wizarding world. I'm going to put on a timer, and when the five minutes are up, we're going to have to move on to the next right. So the first article that we're going to talk about is Article 1 of the UDHR, which is the right to equality. So before we start our round, I'll read out the article. Article one, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. Okay, so I'm about to set the timer for five minutes. So on your mark, get set, magic. So the first thing I thought when I read about this article in the context of Harry Potter, um, is the weird like wizard muggle divide that J.K. Rowling puts in the book. Um, it's just, I mean, we kind of engage with it a bit with like Hermione and people who are half-bloods or mud-bloods, but there's this like weird racial tension that I don't really think by the end of the seventh book is, is like fleshed out about what's good or bad. Like we don't see like a reckoning of how the wizarding world treats the muggles. There is a total lack of humanization of muggles. They're kind of seen as this lower group in society, this less intelligent, less capable group in society. And it was something that when I was little, it was fun to be part of this wizarding world as a way of like looking at what it was like to live through magic. And then now I realize, you know, the muggles get really no say in the book. And even Hermione, who's is sort of one of the sole muggles that we see in the book with a prominent position really uses that sort of sole position to ever talk about what her life was like as a muggle. 
Um, same with Harry, who basically grew up as a muggle. There, there's kind of very little humanization of the human, if you will. Um, and there's like one specific example I was thinking of is sort of when they were talking about serious black, you know, crazy lashing out against muggle society. You know, it's less about sort of the muggles that he actually harmed in the process of his actions, which of course we later find out were not his actions directly. And it's, you know, they, they only ever reference the muggles in terms of numbers to talk about the magnitude of their impact and how crazy it was that they took their violence to the muggle world, rather than actually thinking about kind of their magic's impact on the muggles themselves from like a let's care about people kind of perspective. Yeah, I thought that was strange too, is like the reason for the muggle wizard divide, which really kind of reminded me of like an apartheid regime, is this like weird combination of like, one, if the muggles found out about us, they would either harm us, like with the witch trials, which apparently is the reason why this whole muggle divide started in the first place. But then at the same time, there's this like complete wizard manipulation of muggles, like very easily. So with like either memory charms um, or with like various other magic. Um, and there's a very little, kind of like you said, very little humanization of the muggles. Like all of these, you know, so the fourth Withering book is 1995, right? So presumably all of these horrible things are happening in Europe, like the Bosnian War or like the Rwandan genocide or just, you know, things are happening around the world and the wizards don't seem to be impacted by it at all. And there doesn't seem to be any mentality in the wizarding community world of like, hey, uh, we can make tents that are bigger on the inside. Maybe we should, like, help other humans. No, I agree. There's this kind of, we're not supposed to use, you know, our powers to affect the lives of muggles. But, you know, if a muggle wants a problem to be solved, that's just general human suffering that should be ended. Then why aren't we putting resources towards that if that exists? Um, and I thought a lot of ways that muggles are sort of described or viewed like as this topic of interest and as this exotic species that you never really interacted with um it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way in dehumanizing people and like not and sort of creating big rifts in terms of status and level of society yeah and that was something else that i will grapple with later but like the magical creatures so there are some magical creatures. I mean, we, there, there are some who are just genuinely like have not human levels of intelligence, but there are a lot of magical creatures that Rowling puts in that do. And there's a very clear hierarchy of like wizards, muggles, and then like magical creatures of humanoid intelligence who the wizards just like completely degrade or ignore or believe have no value. And I wonder how that would fit in with article one, um, you know, equal rights and dignity they say they are endowed with reason and conscious and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood um how that would square with some of the magical creatures in the wizarding world yeah, i think about that a lot with how forens is treated when he stepped in for professor torlani as the divination teacher how his knowledge and the knowledge of his people was so disrespected um and the knowledge of his kind really given that they were sort of this centaurs are kind of a human animal crossover okay so that was our five minutes for article one on the right to equality um as you can see there's a lot in there um but unfortunately we only have five minutes so article two freedom from discrimination so i'll read out the article before we start 
Everyone is entitled to all the rights and freedoms set forth in this declaration without distinction of any kind, such as race, color, sex, language, religion, political or other opinion, national or social origin, property, birth, or other status. Okay, so I'm gonna set our five minutes. Ready, set, Expelliarmus! The first person that comes to mind in this novel for me is Hagrid and how sort of the treatment of Hagrid is just so subpar because first of all, they blame him for opening the Chamber of Secrets. And so he's hanging on this thread of society, like we'll give you a house on the far edges of the woods and you can't hurt anyone, but you're still really lucky because we didn't force you to leave Hogwarts. And how it's, we just accept because he is this giant clunky kind of clumsy character that that has to be associated with a lack of intelligence and a lack of acceptance and respect into Hogwarts society. And I just see that from the very beginning when Harry comes, or Hagrid comes to get Harry, and it's, it's just not fair. Yeah, I, I feel similarly conflicted about Hagrid because I think he's one of the most like lovable characters in a sense, and Harry and Hermione and Ron really bond with him, and yet then the way like the wider community treats him, and the way that no one, no one mentions how this is upsetting or disrespectful or troubling um is 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 a little upsetting um the other thing i think a lot about is just like and like kind of like the token characters in harry potter outside of like the trio or the main characters it's a bit like cho chang seamus finnegan and they become like caricatures of like a racial or ethnic stereotype i totally agree um you know I saw this great tweet. I don't know who tweeted it, but I'm just going to say it out there. Twitter thought first. Um, that said, you know, J.K. Rowling naming all of her white characters. Dumbledore, Hermione Granger, Percival Weasley. You know, Harry Potter is probably the more average name, but it's still like a real kind of full name. And then Cho Chang for the one Asian character. Just like lack of creativity, lack of diversity. Um, using the name as the only way to acknowledge someone's race in a way that's actually more stereotypical than groundbreaking in terms of representation when London and England is one of the most diverse countries in the world is very interesting to me and very shocking. Yeah, I agree. There was this lack of of acknowledgement of like these people's backgrounds or experiences beyond just like this like, oh, like that's their race. And and a kind of a lack of the acknowledgement of the like, um, like whiteness or Englishness, and just nothing, no engagement, no nothing, no character ever says anything. Um, the other thing that other people have talked about too is just there are no queer people at Hogwarts, which is just shocking to me. Like it's just first of all, it's fake news, right? And um, J.K. Rowling has sort of addressed this because she heavily implied that Dumbledore was gay in the, like, books, but then she never explicitly stated it, but then she stated it later, and there's just no, um, there's no one, there's no queer kids, there's no questioning kids, there's no trans kids, there's no binary kids, and it's, and then the ending in particular really bothered me. The epilogue where they've all married their like heteronormative childhood sweethearts and like none of the reckoning that like Harry and Hermione and Ron were doing with the wizard society with like 
how the Wizarding Society was broken or racist or discriminatory in these ways. None of those reckonings, like, ever came to fruition. Like, it didn't show them, like, okay, like, we acknowledged all these harms, but then we're, like, addressing them. It was, like, don't worry, everything's okay. Like, Voldemort's gone, and, like, they all got married. Yeah, what happened to all of the corruption we saw in the Ministry of Magic? What happened to the status of house elves, which honestly was very not questioned, and we'll talk more about that later. Something that also came up with Article 2 was the discrimination that exists between houses and the way that there are sort of stereotypes built on the houses and this automatic assumption that every Slytherin is awful and sneaky and slimy and gross, which the characters were presented with, yes, do embody that stereotype, but kind of further feeds into this discrimination against Slytherins. Yeah, and again, it's one of those things where, like, I think the Hogwarts hat at one point kind of reckons with the sorting and it's sort of alluded to like, oh, this is literally sectarianism, but then it's never actually addressed, right? Like in the epilogue seventh book, Harry's son is like, I don't want to be in Slytherin. And he's like, don't worry, Snape was in Slytherin. Like, again, this failure to reckon with the structural. And one more thing on article two discrimination before we move on is you mentioned um, before when we were talking disability rights and the portrayal of Neville's parents, which I think is such a good point. Yeah, so I, I think it's really surprising that we don't hear of other sort of potential lack of ability in, in Harry Potter or lack of sort of normative body structures. I mean, I think there's, we may have discussed this a little bit, and there's sort of this theory that Lupin is supposed to represent um, what was happening with the AIDS epidemic. Um, but also there is like this idea that people in bad health are very rarely talked about in this book and are talked about in sort of a pitied stance and additionally have more discrimination put towards them. And it's just really shocking because, you know, is it supposed to be that magic takes away from your ability or enhances your ability? Because that's also even more problematic. Well, that's the timer. That's perfect timing, Chica. So our next article is Article 4, Freedom from Slavery. So the article reads, no one shall be held in slavery or servitude. Slavery in the slave trade shall be prohibited in all their forms. So we have five minutes. Three, two, one, Wingardium Leviosa. So for me, this is the most egregiously violated article in the entire wizarding world. So in book two, we sort of get a foreshadowing of this, but it's book four and five, in which the fact that the entire wizarding world is based on slave labor comes up. And even more shocking than this, I mean, the house elves themselves are an incredibly problematic creature. They're a creature that wants to be enslaved, that can only flourish when being enslaved, that like actively works within their own enslavement, which in itself is just horrifying that it exists in this book but you know the you know if if the Malfoys had house elves or like if all the Death Eaters had house elves it would you know it 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 would be one thing but it's the fact that the entire wizarding community exists on this slave labor and the only person who's upset about it is Hermione Granger. The apathy that I see from Ron and Harry regarding elf labor is just really really sad because i'm rooting for them in so many other ways and they are super 
gung-ho and excited to take on all of these challenges that are way above their wizarding level but the simple act of listening to and respecting a house elf is still beyond them um house elves also seem to embody what people in power think when they're a part of indentured servitude and perpetuating slavery in other ways like these people want to be served these figures want to like our best under our supervision and with our guidance and will you know perish without us it's like it's it's really difficult to see and i and i hope that people realize that this is not something to celebrate or accept but it's actually supposed to get us upset and angry and hermione is working so 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 hard in the fourth book to bring some awareness and the fact that she's the only one that thought that was wrong the one muggle in the room it it shocks me like that's yeah, the book is just it, oof. It, exactly i mean the arguments even on the like quote-unquote good characters in the book about the house elves is so reminiscent of british colonial era arguments about india which is like okay like we may be committing like mass violations but we're bringing infrastructure and i think the other thing that is troubling about the house elves is is part of the way that like harry potter and his friends deal with injustice where we see like harry's quite motivated to to address injustice if it's on a micro level. So like with Dobby, the house elf, he's sort of like, oh, it's, it's unfair that the Malfoys have, have, you, have enslaved you essentially. But there's no willingness to engage with a larger structural problem within the wizarding world. So it's like Harry frees Dobby, which I guess is nice, but is completely fine with the fact that like Winky in subsequent uh, books or you know, literally the Hogwarts kitchen staff are slaves, right? There's no, there's no grappling with those structural injustice issues within the wizarding world, which I think is indicative of the rest of, of the book as well. Um, one thing I just want to mention quickly, we have one minute, 15 seconds left, is the other magical creatures who are particularly problematic, um, goblins and centaurs. Um, JK Rowling's description of goblins as the untrustworthy, like very different, like bankers obsessed with money who have different conceptions of property, just an incredible anti-Semitic stereotype, which I cannot believe just bypasses us all. And then centaurs, which I really felt had like a Native American um, analogy, especially when, um, you know, the centaurs talk about them restricting their lands in the forbidden forests and the way that like they treated their culture and, and depicted them as savages and therefore unworthy of, of rights. Um, I felt that there was there was a colonial um, sort of element there too. And something else I was thinking about is the way Voldemort tries to connect with these different sort of magical creatures and groups. And I'm in no way condoning that what Voldemort is doing and the terror he's bringing to all these communities, but just to think about how he's reaching out to other groups that have felt a similar sort of oppression by kind of the dominant wizarding group in order to create sort of cohesion for his army is really problematic, but also goes to show that there is a similar underlying issue of slavery and not feeling included in society and not feeling like you have a voice. Well, that was our timer. That was the perfect end. Um, Definitely the most egregious article by far. Five um, minutes is not enough. So article five. 
freedom from torture and degrading treatment. So this article reads, no one shall be subjected to torture or to cruel, inhumane, or degrading treatment or punishment. Um, so I'm not going to end this countdown with the Crucio curse, but three, two, one, Expelliarmus. This is probably one of the most awful parts of the book that we have to reckon with is the ability for wizards to, with the power of their wands, inflict so much damage and harm and kill one another. And the fact that these, there are these three imperial curses that are said to be spoken by no one unless it's sort of the crazy circumstance, but throughout the book were exposed from the very beginning to how often these spells get used, especially when you're dealing with Death Eaters and Voldemort's crew. So just the normalization of torture in a lot of ways is something I was thinking about. Um, for the spells that normally never get used, we see them so much in the Harry Potter series. Yeah, and it was something I was thinking about because you kind of always expect in books for, like, the evil guys to use the evil spells. Um, and you kind of do see this with the Cruciatus Curse, which is, like, it's only... I mean, I think Harry tries to use it once, and then he can't, like, his, he can't go through with it or something. But but the the torture or degrading treatment in other like, through other mechanisms. So, like, the Dementors, to me, really stood out as, like, you know, in the third book, they're like, oh, Sirius Black is so evil. Uh, Azkaban is literally, I mean, would definitely not meet the European standards of human rights for, for prisons, where they're like, okay, so we have these prisoners, and presumably there's different levels of prisoners. I don't know, this is never really engaged with beyond just, like, the homicide maniacs. Um, but Dementors would certainly constitute state-sponsored torture, at least I, I, I think. I remember us in sort of the human rights class discussing what transitional justice looks like and thinking about what metrics of justice we can apply to those who are complicit in pushing forward one side of history that was oftentimes the harmful side that killed a lot of civilians for a lot of people, yet in, you know, giving them a right to fair trial, what, what sort of justice mechanisms exist? you know, the Death Eaters after Voldemort loses, like, oh, now we want to be on the winning side, get to still be in this position of power guarding Azkaban. And, you know, now that we're inflicting torture on quote unquote, the right side of history, it's suddenly okay. Yeah. I, no, I agree. I, I always felt Azkaban, again, it's this failure to reckon with the structural issues. Harry's like, okay, I'm going to rescue Sirius from Azkaban, but there's no like, reckoning of like, okay, is Axkaban conceptually appropriate for anybody? Uh, moving away from like more, you know, things that are very clearly established as torture, I think two of the other things that really stood out to me that might fit under this article is um, Snape's treatment of Harry and then the Dursley's treatment of Harry. Um, so I think a lot of people had mentioned like the Dursley's, I mean, it's child abuse, right? Like social services should have been called. It's just not okay the way that Harry was treated and the way that we're, you know, Vernon is allowed to yell and verbally abuse Harry, the way Petunia is allowed to take away food from Harry. Uh, and there's no other means of Harry getting justice. Um, you had the neighbor was supposed to check on Harry but couldn't really do anything. Like what kind of figure can be protective other than making sure the child stays alive? I'm not really sure. And, and Dumbledore just left Harry there and didn't really check on him for 11 years. I yeah. don't understand. The, and then the, the, muggle, 
the muggle blindness towards it too. I mean, presumably they're still in the British like jurisdiction. So I felt that was a little troubling. The other thing I found troubling was the character Snape. Now I know Snape is supposed to be the one with like the big arc of redemption. So rereading the books, like knowing, like with the eye to like, oh, like Snape is secretly good. Um, I still was like, okay, you are awful. Like maybe Harry's dad bullied you. And again, don't condone that. But you cannot, the way he treats Harry and the way he also treats other students. I mean, he literally body shames Hermione in multiple books. Um, And I just was not convinced I understand that, like, it's supposed to be, like, the great love story reveal, but again, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with this, like, heteronormative love ending, so there's no reckoning with the structural injustice, but the fact that he, like, loves Lily somehow absolve him of all of his past behavior, I just didn't buy. Kinds of treatment that Snape engages in would 100% be outlawed and have sort of a process for justice in a normal college or environment and I just wonder that because Hogwarts only goes up until the age of 18 what they're trying to get away with allowing teachers to treat students in such an unfair manner allowing you know like I also think of the way Umbridge um, inflicted torture in her part in her detentions with Harry forcing him to write using his own blood until he injured himself like beyond repair is just so cruel and so degrading and kind of combats a lot of the progress we've made in terms of how to treat children and how to provide fair motivations and rewards so that they don't have, you know, so that they feel like they have a chance to improve in society. Our next right is Article 10, the right to a fair public hearing. So this article states, everyone is entitled in full equality to a fair and public hearing by an independent and impartial tribunal in the determination of his rights and obligations and of any criminal charge against him. So three, two, one, Accio. So I just think about how Harry has sort of a mix of interactions with justice when it comes to his experience using magic and his experience having the opportunity to state why and when he used magic. Um, First of all, it was an accident when he used magic in I believe the second book when it was in his interaction with Dobby and there was also the trial in which him using magic as an underage wizard came up and the amount of preparation that he had to do what he had to wear how he had to speak every every little detail was taken into account and it just kind of goes to show how a trial is stacked against you from the start of scenes, especially in this book and his his history and his sort of total story and his opportunity to explain himself was just very limited. It wasn't an opportunity to explain himself. It was a formality in which everyone had their perceptions conceived already of why Harry used magic. And that is not how fair trials run. And I just think about how that, from what we've heard about the book, it doesn't seem like other trials are very different. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too, is that like, Again, we don't really engage with the justice system that much in the book, but there seems to be very little faith in it. One of the things that I really thought about with Harry's trial is when they brought in, I'm forgetting his neighbor's name, but she was a squib. And just the 
distaste and like literally her testimony was going to be considered less valuable because of what we talked about before the discrimination against non-muggle people um which is ridiculous um but yeah so so the two ways that the justice system kind of comes up is with Sirius Black and then with the Death Eater trials. So again, with Sirius Black, I mean, at the end of the third book, you kind of, you get an allusion to this, which is like, hey, we have some evidence that like Sirius, or at least that would, um, you know, cause some um, doubt as to whether Sirius is truly guilty of this. And there's just a general acceptance that like, it absolutely won't be a fair trial. You better go on the lam. The fact that someone would want to run away and, and take his chances as a fugitive versus go through a fair trial to live in isolation after years of being in a heavily guarded, you know, torturous prison just goes to show how little opportunity a justice system provides. And we also see that Harry benefit from that. I remember Cornelius Fudge letting Harry kind of off the hook. Uh, yeah, that was in the third book where Cornelius was book. like, I just used, threw my weight around and, and got your trial thrown out. And same with Dumbledore, right? I mean, Dumbledore intervenes and has enough political clout despite the kind of, you know, pre-war climate that they're in to be able to get Harry off the hook. It doesn't seem like Harry has the right to representation. I've never heard of a wizard lawyer. So, and, and it becomes clear, I mean, with the, you know, the Malfoys are kind of alluded to, but there's a lot of corruption in the justice system and in the government. Um, the other thing I was thinking about is, it's, again, it's not really fleshed out, but there's this allusion to what happened after Voldemort fell the last time with the Death Eater trials, um, which seems to be a combination of summary justice and also corruption, so that the Death Eaters who actually were sent to prison and the Death Eaters, like the Malfoys, who are able to like, it's kind of implied pay their way um, to an amnesty um, also seems very problematic for, for the wizarding justice system. And paying your amnesty is not even something discreet. That's something Draco talks about all the time, that it's, if it's his father, he's going to get off scot-free, or I'm going to call my father when I lied about an animal biting me so Hagrid can be put in trouble. I mean, that's the whole premise of the third book and the reason that there is a buck beak on trial and the reason that Sirius gets away starts off by, you know, a sad, whiny little boy's calls daddy to come fix a situation that he's annoyed by. And so in the use of money, the use of privilege and the use of power to get out of fairness in a lot of ways is so, is way too human for a book that's supposed to be so magical. Something else that confuses me is that, like, with all the capabilities to see and understand where people use magic and why people use magic, and maybe there is an argument to privacy here, but is there no way to check what happened to Harry? Is there no sort of secret wizarding camera that catches what actually happens when someone uses magic? Um, there might be some privacy implications, but why, why can't that help the justice system in a magical world? That was exactly time. So that was magical. <laughs> <laughs> For our last UDHR article, we're looking at Article 21, Subclause 3, the right to participate in government and free elections. So this article states, the will of the people shall be the basis of the authority of government. 
This will shall be expressed in periodic and genuine elections, which shall be by universal and equal suffrage, and shall be held by secret vote or by equivalent free voting procedures. So three, two, one, expecto patronus. So this article is the one that sort of bothers me the most, and that's probably because I am in politics, but the just lack of governance structures and free and fair governance structures in the wizarding world on multiple levels. So presumably the Ministry of Magic is a ministry like within the muggle governance system, but it sort of operates in parallel and the Minister of Magic is sort of like the prime minister. And so it's never, it's never talked about whether like do the wizards vote in like general elections for like British parliament or do they have their own representatives? Like there, there don't appear to be any elections. There doesn't appear to be wizarding political parties, but they don't appear to know anything about muggle politics. So it's sort of in a sense, they're in like this quasi dictatorship based on whomever is selected minister of magic. And I feel at times they really try to play into that system when they talk about, oh, how Dumbledore would make such a wonderful minister of magic and how he's always been wanted by the ministry. But, you know, he's too good for politics. He thinks he's like better and above that sort of system. And it just shows a lack of engagement with the political infrastructure and uh, an acceptance that we're not putting the best people in power and there's no way to really fix that. And it seems like you know, even like Arthur Weasley, who clearly, you know, has a certain political outlook with his view on muggles, has no choice but to join the ministry establishment. And there's no way for him to organize separately until right, the rise of the Order of the Phoenix and sort of a quasi-war situation. The other thing that is surprising is the state of free press. So we have the Daily Prophet, which appears to be the only newspaper. So it's a monopoly. And then it becomes clear in the fourth, fifth, and sixth books that it's a government mouthpiece. So it's propaganda. Um, and the only opposition newspaper is the Quibbler, which I guess would be like equivalent to People Weekly. Like it's, a, it's not a legitimate opposition newspaper in the way like The Guardian um, would be. And so there's very little access to free information in the wizarding world. There's so much belief just based on one person, their experiences and the charisma they have. I mean, we see that in the whole second book, Gilderoy Lockhart, who literally creates fake news, indoctrinates people to act as if it's the real truth, and then publishes it. And all of his credence and all of his prestige is based upon all of this fake news. And again, why in a world of magic is there still so much ability to not find the truth and to hide and obfuscate the truth rather than actually bring it forward. And yeah, Gilder, I'm so glad you brought up Gilderoy Lockhart because that's another thing that really troubled me about the books is the oblivion charm and the right to memory. So Gilderoy Lockhart uses the oblivion charm on like a number of wizards to wipe their memory and then it backfires on himself, et cetera, et cetera. He's, he's put in a mental ward. But it doesn't appear clear that he would have been prosecuted for that. Like, is wiping memory a crime? And the way that, I mean, so on a micro, like, inter-wizard level, the Oblivion Charm is a problem. But the, the, the use of it that really bothered me is the way they use the Oblivion Charms on the muggles. So they often say, oh, we use Oblivion Charm on muggles because they saw magic and we needed to wipe their memory, et cetera, et cetera. But 
the, I believe it was the sixth or seventh book where the Minister of Magic visits the Prime Minister, who's supposed to, you know, allegedly be his boss, and there's supposed to be some sort of political or democratic accountability there, and just completely manipulates the muggle democratic establishment, um, being like, oh yeah, we wiped the memory of the last guy, and I'm going to bully you around, and this is what's happening in the wizarding world, and you just have to deal with it. And so it completely takes the rug out from under the muggle democratic governance structure, and is it's not clear exactly what it's replaced with besides this like shadow wizard deep state. That whole interaction was so, so weird and so confusing. Um, and honestly, kind of hilarious when you didn't think about it too much. Um, the way that <laughs> he just came in and told, put the prime minister in his place that was created by the power dynamic. I have magic and you don't. And it just goes to show that there is no real fair scheme to organize the wizarding world. Something else that bothers me is this assumption that the Ministry of Magic is the main governing body, but it is all headed and located in London and England. I specifically remember in the Quidditch World Cup when they're talking about all of these wizards coming from around the world, but it seems like the Ministry of Magic is the only one that's organizing the Quidditch World Cup. And there may have been a reference, but I don't remember if other governance structures for wizards ever organized the World Cup and it was in a different location because it seems like the only wizard governing structure, despite a world and access to a world of wizards, is located in London. And I just wonder what kind of implications that has from like a colonial lens as well. This is a side note that in all of JK Rowling's like subsequent um, like short stories, every place there is a like a magical school internationally is all in a former british colony so it's like implied that it's british outposts that like bring magic elsewhere i think we mentioned this at, at the beginning of the difficulty of separating art from the artist and if that's even possible and i think one of the reasons that the discrimination and anti-blackness and discrimination against magical creatures, the literal enslavement of magical creatures is so viscerally upsetting in the wizarding world is because it does reflect a reality. Um, in JK Rowling's case, it's the British context in which the British empire was literally based on slavery. Um, and anti-blackness and other forms of racism um, are still exist in British society. So it's not like we're, we're thinking about the wizarding world from you know, a utopian post-racial place. This is something that we, the, you know, we still are grappling with both in the UK and in the US. So we briefly touch on racism and discrimination in this podcast but especially given the global attention to the Black Lives Matter movement and anti-Blackness and its deep, deep history in not only American society, but in the colonial world, it's important that we recognize the ways in which the media that we consume can influence or normalize certain points of oppression and discrimination, and that this podcast that we've done is merely a conversation starter to a whole set of actions conversations, education, and compensation that we should be moving towards as we support the fight against uh, racism and the liberation of all people.
You've been listening to The Rights Pod, a podcast by the Center for Human Rights and International Justice at Stanford University. For more resources on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or on human rights in general, you can check out the resources in our show's show notes. To keep human rights close to your home, please subscribe to The Rights Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this conversation, you can even give us a rating or review. You're listening to The Rights Pod. The views reflected in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Stanford Center for Human Rights.